0: Thanks, Chad. So that's really cool because the angels long to look into what we get a chance to look into today. I just want you to think a little bit about that idea. The angels, eternal beings who experience the presence of God for all eternity past, long to look into what we get to know and experience so where we're going to kind of wind up today, and it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful concept. Just a minute ago, we're singing, How Marvelous, How Wonderful is My Savior's Love for Me. And I want, to, I want to speak to that just a second before we get into the heart of the message. We can have a great error when we, when we celebrate or, or, or even watch people celebrate. We're not celebrating anything that was born in us, that, that we were able to muster up. We're celebrating the love that Christ has for us, and it's initiating love. It's a satisfying love. It's a steadfast love that can't change and doesn't need to change to fully satisfy all that we are. So it's nothing of us that we celebrate, but everything of Christ that we celebrate this morning. All right, so now let's get into the heart of the message, and, and you're really going to have to bear with me a second here, okay? Because here's some of you who know this, this building know that there are stairs right there going up there to the stage, and there's stairs on that side that are going up to the stage. Pretend with me for a second, because it, it, it destroys this illustration that those stairs aren't there, all right? Okay, and then pretend that, um, that I can't just hop up there. Onto the stage, all right? Those two things. Can you can you pretend those things with me? Give me a yes or yeah. Okay, okay. So here's the deal, all right? I can't get up there, and what I really need is my my Bible and my notes and the podium, which are standing up there on the stage, right? You see it? You can see it right there. I've got. I, if I if I don't have those, I'm going to be totally lost, and we're going to be here for about eight or nine minutes, which you guys might enjoy. Uh, and so I, I've got to get to that. I've got to I've got to obtain. That podium and that Bible and those notes. So I have, I have the stool here, but I, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to be able to get up to the stool, right? Like, it's just too high. So I'm going to have to help to step there. So let me see if I can figure this out. It's so far away, right? From, and it, this chair is so little. Even if it were closer, I probably couldn't step from that chair to that stool. because It's just too far away and too high. So we need something else. Luckily... There was a chair here. I don't know how it got here, but it's here. So I put these things together. As I was preparing this this morning, Travis is like, more bars, more places. That's what it kind of looks like there. Yeah, you're right, but that's not what I'm getting at. So now all these things are here. I'm relying upon the little blue chair, the metal chair, and then the stool, which gets me perfectly, with no problems, up to what I really need to obtain. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Very, very lucky. Kyle's over there taking pictures. Are we going to tweet that or something, Kyle? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So I'm relying upon all three of those things together. And so First Peter, we, we're, this is the fourth message in First Peter, and every one of them is reliant upon the one before. Um, who likes... Uh, a, there's a television program called Law and Order. Who likes that show? Dave and Jonathan and Kyle. Um, there's an, there used to be a show called Lost. Who, who liked that show? Look at all the hands. Look at them. Yeah, me too. Um, there's a great difference in the two of those shows. You can go watch Law and Order and not have to see anything prior to Law and Order. You don't need to know what's happened in the characters' lives. To know the story. There's like a murder or something that happens and they're trying to solve it. It completely is contained within that hour-long program. Lost, however, you need to know the backstory. You need to know, you know, what's been happening to the characters, what's going on, what's the deal with that island, all those things. You have to know all of those things to enjoy fully a particular episode. And so here's the, here's the, 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 that idea and the idea that we need to have each one of these stairs to get to where we need to obtain what we need to obtain is, is sort of a danger that we face when we read any book of the Bible, and in particular this one. Here comes your, uh, your Bible study lesson here, uh, a seminary lesson that I learned. If we are to study a book of Scripture... We've really got to know everything about the book. And this is an oral tradition, an oral culture where First Peter was originally written. So that means when it's spoken, it's not done like we do today. Like we look at th- two or three or four verses and then we dive and, and chew on them. That happened later on. When the people originally encountered this scripture, they heard the whole thing. So as Peter's writing through the power of the Holy Spirit, he intends for us to get the big picture of all that's happening here. And so the danger for us is that we, we just see these things in little bites, all right? Like one of those chairs. We're like trying to watch an episode of Lost when you've seen nothing else. It can be entertaining, but it doesn't bring its complete value. You follow the, the thought process there? And so we have the first three sermons uh, three, first three messages in first peter we 've really been very slow and very intentionally slow and, and looking in depth at just two and three word phrases and because they 're all just so deep and so pregnant with meaning and, and we, we really need to spend a lot of time wrestling and chewing and, and, and trying to soak everything out of each particular phrase, but there is great value for us to, to step back and see not just a micro version of what we 're talking about but a macro looking at this passage. From 10,000 feet. So that's what I want to take us through this morning, looking at these first 12 verses. And these first 12 verses really serve as, as sort of a, the, the baseline for what Peter's going to talk about for the rest of the, of the chapter, or the rest of the book. And here's the thing. The, the title of this series is Shaped by Jesus. And really, it's all about how we can practically walk through a life being affected by a culture that is opposed to Jesus and, and understand how to, how to walk towards Christ throughout, the, eterni- throughout the, the, the wholeness of our life. And so of all the scriptures, of all the books, this is a really, really good one for where we are in this time, in this place, living in a culture that doesn't really get Jesus And if they do, most of the people that that do understand or think they understand about who Jesus is, there's persecution, there's stone throwing, there's things that just, if you're following Christ, then eh, I don't really want to have anything to do with you. And so we can relate to that. And so it's really important for us to see the big picture of what Peter is trying to communicate to us. So let's walk through these first 12 verses because they are the baseline for all of, of this book. So we'll, we'll walk through like the intro and the background section. First, the, the background to the, the book of 1 Peter. Um, it is, there is uh, unbelievable suffering that's coming from these people. Um, it's it's uh, written here. Uh, the date of of the book is 62 to 63 A.D. somewhere in there. And Nero, you guys have probably heard of the Emperor Nero of Rome. Uh, he reigns, and, he reigns over Rome and Jerusalem, and the Christians are a client state of Rome, which means that they have to do whatever Rome says. They can think they have some sort of, some sort of power and autonomy, but ultimate power and autonomy lies with Rome and lies with Nero. So they walk around, they have their own little sub-governors who kind of govern small little things, but Nero and the Romans have the ultimate power. And, and here's the, the real culture of what's happening here. We, can, we walk around, these people walk around thinking they, they have some sort of authority and they know what's going on and, and, and they've, they've got some sort of control over their lives, but ultimately, if they're honest with themselves, they know that Nero can end them at any time. Nero, and anybody with any sort of power, a governor or an authority of any kind, can have their power stripped like that by Nero or anybody else in his, his, his power authority, all right? So here's what happens. Notice, this is 62 to 63 A.D. is when this book is written, and it's a lot filled with suffering and how to follow Christ in the midst of suffering and how God uses suffering as a tool and all those things. And... Nero begins killing Christians in 64 AD. So like a year to a year and a half after the people of God wrestle with these scriptures. And massive, some of you are new, you haven't heard this before. Here's what happens. Here's how Nero killed Christians. Every night, every night, Nero would have a garden party in his palace. Outside party in I'll tell you later what happened at those outside parties. And they were at night, so it was dark. So Nero needed light. What he would do was he had these huge, like 10-foot, ultimately what, what amounts to like a sharpened telephone pole that was 10 to 12 feet off the ground. And they would carry a Christian up there, impale them, pour oils on them, and set them on fire. So these are, this is how the Christians were dying every night. Every night. 10, 20 Christians dying in this way every night. This, and Nero was killing them in this way. And this is the this is the fate that's, that awaits the people that are hearing this. So we're hearing this for the first time. And in a year and a half, great persecution is going to come upon us. That's the, the intro and the, the background to what's happening here. So move to the, the first two verses. We'll go through, through these quickly. Um, Stuff to see here. First of all, the, the main point for us to see here is you were not built for here. You're exiles. Peter calls you an exile on this planet. And all that means, that if take a, a, a fish, take them out of the water, put them on, this, on the side of, a, of a, the bank of a, of a pond or lake or whatever, and they're flopping around. They're not made to get their oxygen the way we are. Put us in water, we're going to drown. We're not made for this world. And there will be suffering for us in this world because we were not made here. And why were we not made to be here? We're made to, to be here, but there's been something that's happened to this world, and it's sin that comes and breaks a perfect rhythm, a shalom, a peace that we were intended to, to, to live in. But that's been broken, and as such, we encounter brokenness in this world. I'm broken Ben is broken, Jeff is broken, my wife is broken, and we all our, our brokenness rubs up against each other's brokenness and causes more brokenness. We are not made to be here on this earth. And this is what Peter lays in front of these people from the beginning, and they sense a bit of persecution as they're reading this, but nothing like they'll experience in a year and a half from when they read this. So you're not built from here for here but verse 2 and this is the the one of the most beautiful verses that I've got a chance to meditate on in a really long time according to the foreknowledge of the father and the sanctification of the spirit god is purif that word sanctification of the spirit god is purifying our hearts to to take away the brokenness of this world and, and how it changes us and hurts us and persecutes us. That's what sanctification of the Spirit is, making us a little less broken so that we can experience him in a greater way today than we did yesterday, in a greater way tomorrow than we do today. That's sanctification of the Spirit. This is why Peter is writing this book, so that we can have that sort of limited brokenness and, and, and greater experience with him but this is the beautiful part for obedience with jesus christ for the sprinkling with his blood and i went through this when we we preached this message for the first time but this phrase sprinkling with his blood the old testament picture is they had to sprinkle things with blood and one time a year the high priest would go into the holy of holies and sprinkle blood on the altar of a perfect lamb so that the whole nation all the people of god could worship god Otherwise, it couldn't happen. And only one time was one person, one time a year, one person was able to enter into the presence of God by the sprinkling of the blood. So, this phrase, sprinkling of the blood, ultimately means this every one of us at every point in all eternity, past and future, have the ability to walk into the presence of God. Old Testament times, one guy once a year could enter into the presence of God. You and I. We'll talk about this in verse 12 when he starts talking about prophets got to look forward to this. You and I get to look back at an event and experience that event. And the beautiful thing is, and and I want, I don't want to go so quickly to to see the panoramic view of this to miss the beauty of this. This is very practical for you and I. Stop and listen. Listen. There is never a time, there will never be a time in your life, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and surrendered completely to him, there will never, ever be a time where you don't have complete access to God. In the midst of sin, directly after sin, when you feel worthless in who you are, doesn't change. You have access to God, Period. And that, the words joy and glory are all throughout these 12 verses. That is, is a piece of joy and glory and has to bring great passion and, and motivation to worship. Move on to verse 3 and the second message that we talked about. Dave preached that one. God is the hero and not you. I talked at the beginning that we don't celebrate anything that we have done in order to gain the love of God, the love of Jesus. It's all his initiating and motivating and acting love. We are an inactive agent in that love process. God ignites our hearts and gives us the opportunity and ability to love him. This is the heart of it. We are not the hero. You are not the hero. You'll never be the hero God is. And here's another beautiful phrase, verse 4, we have this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. For me, I I I go back and I think about I used to have this miserable job when I was in college. It was painting and and I, I it was we painted like the outside of houses, and, and most of what I did was scraping. One, because I was the youngest guy and, and the newest guy on the staff, and that's the, they give him the scraping. And two, because I'm really, really bad at painting. <laughs> my wife can fully attest to that. So I was the scraper. And so what happened, I got this little this tool that's about this big and a, and a blade that's about that long on it. And my job is to scrape an entire house, from like 7 in the morning until probably about 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. And I tell you about one, one of the times, there was about a, I don't know, a 50-foot peak, and I was on about a 45-foot ladder. And so the peak is here, and, and I can't fully reach it. So literally, this is what's happening. I'm kind of hanging on to the top of the house, and the top rung of the ladder is down here where my feet are, and I'm leaning scraping this house and I'm scared to death. I'm gonna I'm gonna fall off of this thing and it's fifty feet and, and I I really could die. And quite literally I mean it was the most it was the dumbest thing I've ever done to to be leaning out fifty feet in the air like doing this. And and not just this. I'm like forcefully scraping. And but there's there's something then I'm here's, here.'s the beautiful part about that job is, it was 1990. I was in college in 1990. Yeah, um, and I was getting paid $12 an hour, and he would just give me $12 an hour in cash, and that was It was a lot of money back then. For and I was I was 19. I mean, that's really that's a lot of money for a 19 year old. And so as I'm up there, I'm looking forward to this prize is at the end, and I say all of that to say. Here, for these people, Peter is laying in front of them the prize. that can't be taken away. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you. There is so much God can, God can bring suffering and difficulty into this world and bring it into our lives. But what can never happen is the inheritance that we have, the prize that's at the end, can never perish, can never defile, can never fade. So as we walk through, the picture is our lives and the suffering that can be or like me about to die, scared to death, I'm going to fall off of this ladder and die. The thing that, that drives us to get through those days is the pride that's un, unperishing, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Skip down to, to verse 6, the third message, and this is... Some of my favorite stuff, too. I think I've said that three times already. Uh, Verse 6. Suffering is a tool used by God to purify your faith. Uh, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. In this, talking about that prize that we just talked about, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is beautiful because we think that we can really easily be focused on the suffering that happens in our lives. And no matter what suffering happens to us, it's probably not going to be as bad as being impaled on a pole and set on fire. And it's definitely not going to be as bad as being abandoned by God and all of your friends to suffocate on a tree, as Christ was. So, suffering is a tool used to to bring, to purify our faith. And when we walked through this before, we read verse seven without the the parenthetical insert here. Trials have come in your life so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering happens to you to purify your faith. Suffering happens to you to get you to quit trusting in stuff and people and on God. Say that again. Suffering happens to you to get you to quit trusting in people and stuff and start trusting in God because every person that you'll ever meet will fail you. Come to this church long enough, get to know me long enough, and I will screw up. I will lie to you. I will be mean to you. I will ignore you. I will do something mean to you. And so will everybody else in this room. So will everybody else that you will ever meet. If you put your trust in people, they will fail you. Fathers don't protect their children. Fathers do worse things than that to their children. Husbands beat their wives. Husbands cheat on their wives. Wives cheat on their husbands. Wives abuse their husbands. All that happens. And it's suffering, and in the midst of it, we're like, what in the world, God? Why would you allow? I love you. Why would you allow this to happen to me? And here, God is communicating to you boldly. Stop trusting in those people, you dummy. Trust in me. I had a beautiful house and a great house, and it was wonderful. And it was, I was, exci- you know, every night I got to lay my head down, and in the back of my, my, my backyard was a, a trampoline and a swing set that my kids got to play in every day, and it was great. And then one Friday night, about three, four months ago, a storm came and a tornado knocked it down. And now I'm living in a house with, I asked my son what this, this morning on the way to church, what do you like better, the, the royal house, which is the one we used to live in, or the saddle house, which is the rental house we have now? Oh, I love the royal house a lot better, Dad. Why? Because the saddle house has mice and flies. It's true. It does. It does. Come over, and I'll show you. Uh, I can show you the flies. I'll have to dig up the mice. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Uh, um, Okay, i lost my train of thought there, making fun of mice. But the the point is, is that we, I've trusted in my home, and it fell. You go in there right now, there's no walls, there's nothing. Just a subfloor and a big gaping hole in the back, and my garage is completely gone. Don't trust in stuff. The more we trust in stuff, the more suffering that's going to come into our lives because ultimately, God wants to purify our faith. And our faith, this is, here's the deal. I want to define this word because faith is a religious word that I can use to you and you don't understand what it is that I'm talking about. Or I say faith to you and this is what I mean to communicate and this is what you hear. So let's be very careful when we use religious words. Faith is a very religious word. Here's what faith is. It's trust and surrender. Yes, God, I believe that you have my best interest in mind, that when a tornado comes and destroys my house, I can say that's good. Or when my wife miscarries twice, I can say that's good, because I trust that you have my best interest at heart. Because I'm not meant for this world. Remember, we talked about exiles. That's why this is a step thing. Your exiles is broken. Stuff's going to happen and mess you up. It's a trust step issue here. We're exiles. So all of those things come together, and and we have to understand that God is trying to get our, our minds off of ourselves and onto him so that we can trust him. But there's more than just trust in this word faith. It's also surrender. We give all that we are. We bet our life. We die to ourselves. When we can honestly say, yes, it's good. Suffering that happens in my life, yes, it's good. Somebody impaled on a stake, burning, can say, yes, it's good. Because of faith. Because I don't trust in this body even. I don't trust in a life that's comfortable. I don't trust in a life that doesn't have pain in it. That's not what I trust in. I trust and surrender to you. Faith is trust and surrender coming together, and when when we trust or when we place faith in stuff, when we surrender to stuff or to people, that is when we're in trouble of suffering to come. But the beautiful thing here, the end of it, the end of verse 7, faith is tested and purified, and the result of that tested and purified faith is praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So first here, we're seeing Christ is revealed. We can now see Jesus. But the good news is there's more, and that's what we're gonna get to with the new verses here in verses eight through 12. Let me read those just for a second. Verse eight kind of more defines faith and trust and surrender and all those things. Though you have not seen him talking about Jesus, we none of us, have ever seen Jesus we love him though we not do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory this is maybe foreign to some of us to think that just seeing Jesus and believing in Jesus can bring joy that's inexpressible So many times we see words that we're familiar with or phrases that we're familiar with, inexpressible joy, and we just pass by them. But if we really dealt with this phrase, inexpressible joy, it it probably should leave us confused. Joy is it's another religious word, and it's just we're extremely content, like a long, hard day and an exhale as you lay your head down on the pillow, sort of contentment, combined with, oh my gosh, this is great. That's joy. Those two ideas coming together. Contented exuberance. Joy. Okay, so we have this contented exuberance that is so great we can't even express it. And again, spoken to people who know at any time the Roman emperor can end them and end the existence of their country in the existence of their ability to worship God, say it's illegal, you can't do it anymore. They know that that's present, a very present reality and very soon they'll begin being burned alive. Okay. Though you have seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Go back to walking up this the, the silly little illustration this morning. Walking up all these things, working together to allow us to obtain the outcome of our faith. And here's, that word obtain is, the, the Greek word is so much bigger than the simple little English word obtain. It is To get it and take it away, and it becomes your possession. I went up there and grabbed this and brought it down, and now this this podium, I'm utilizing its benefit as I teach this morning. But when I leave here, it's going to stay here. So that is less than what this word actually means. We can obtain it and own it and hold it as a possession. So there's, and and it's this possession that it talked about before that can't perish, spoil, or fade. So it's not something that moths can destroy or or this world can destroy or difficult situations can, can break or tear. We own salvation as a possession, as a result of faith. So, verse 10, he begins to talk about salvation. Concerning this salvation... And here's where he starts talking to to these people and to us about how we get to look back at the life of Christ as an event, not as a a hopeful future reality. Concerning the salvation, the prophets, and he's talking about Isaiah, and and back in in, in the back of your bulletin that I handed you is a list of scripture from Isaiah. Take that and read that and study those this week. They're all about Isaiah, hundreds of years before the life of Christ, talking about how Christ is coming someday. A Messiah is coming. Someone who's going to save us from this broken world is coming to save us. That they looked forward to and gloried in, and now we get to look back at as an event. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They studied about this thing called the gospel, verse 11, they inquired, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating and predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. Look at all the language here. It's all about stuff that is to come, future stuff. They predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories, things that are in the future. We are much better off than that. The sufferings of Christ we get to read about and know about. There is no prediction that's happening. And the subsequent glories that they're talking about, the resurrection of Christ and our ability to have this faith that brings us into relationship with him is something that we can experience here and now, that the prophets didn't have that, lock, that luxury. They're looking forward to it. They don't know it like we know it. Verse 12, it was revealed to them That they were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. This is the gospel. But this faith, this Christ died, this imperishable, unfading, all this stuff comes together to make up the gospel that you and I get to not just pull down from a stage and utilize for a moment, for an hour, but that you and I get to pull down from the stage and walk out of this building with and have as a possession for all eternity. And this is the beauty that angels long to look into. Man. wipes me out. If you have your Bible, flip over to to Isaiah, and we're going to read a few of those passages of Scripture, and then we'll we'll be done this morning. And think about Isaiah, the Holy Spirit coming to Isaiah, speaking these things to him, him writing them down for everybody that is ever to walk on the planet can see and hear and read. And he's looking forward, and we get to reflect upon. We're going to go quick here. This is the first one is the stuff that Dave read to us in the call to worship. Chapter 9, verse 6. Again, 500 years from when Isaiah writes this is Jesus born. And 30-some years after that is the reality of the resurrection. For for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We could spend hours thinking about each one of those phrases and how we can look back and see the truth of that in Jesus. And what a beautiful thing that is For And this is something that angels long to look in. And you realize that angels are eternal beings. For all eternity past, they've never tired of looking at the gospel. And one of the reasons why they're, they're not as affected by the gospel as we have, because they've always been in a relationship with God. But we get to experience the gospel and see it and know it. Verse 7, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Look back at what you know about Scripture and, and the trials and, and the, the times where the nation of Israel, God's people, were in plenty and in want. Where they were in power and where they were having to serve and all those things coming back and forth and coming back and forth and all those sufferings designed to get their minds off of themselves and all their present surroundings and onto God. There will be a day when the government of peace, and this isn't just there's no war sort of peace, but a, a soul-resting, contented peace that the government of Christ will establish in the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, Isaiah looking forward to something that we have to look back at as an event. Flip over to Isaiah 11, verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, Talking about Christ. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All of those things, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, all of those things come together in this person that Isaiah is looking forward to, that has no real understanding of, who will never, Isaiah will never lay physical eyes on Jesus. But he's writing about him, talk, talking about the greatness of, of who he will become. Flip way over to Isaiah 42. And there's so much more prophecy about Jesus, but this is what first Peter is talking about. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Justice to the nations. Flip over to Isaiah 49 and i'm going through these quick and that's why we put them in the bullet and these are a chance for you to take this and think deeply about these things as you go throughout your week. Isaiah 49:7 Thus says the Lord the redeemer of Israel and his holy one the one deeply despised abhorred by the nations The servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, that's fall flat on their face before him, because of the Lord who is faithful, the holy one of Israel who has chosen you. That's a really good one. Circle that one in your bolt, and circle that one in your Bible and think deeply on that one as you ponder who Jesus is. Isaiah 53, five. This is one you hear every Easter. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. And again, not just not at war peace, but deep contentment of the soul. Peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah, looking forward to Christ, we get to look back at the event. The gospel, we get to hold and take away as a possession. Last one, Isaiah 61, 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. These people were captive by Rome. We sometimes are captive by the stuff, the life, the brokenness that surrounds us. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Let's read that one again. The Spirit of the Lord is God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Okay, the gospel, the good news. This is what he's brought to me. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the broken heart, to give liberty to the captives and to open the prisons to those who are bound. This is Jesus. This is the gospel. All the prophets had to look forward to it and hope in it. We get to look back at it and experience it and take it away as a possession. And that brings Joy that's inexpressible and allows us to get through the crap of this world and this life and the suffering that we have to endure. It's that inexpressible joy and the holding of that gospel that we cling to, we trust and surrender to because it brings beauty and brings peace. This is the gospel that angels long to look into and we get to to hold. Let's pray and get to worship because of all these truths. God, I thank you for the gospel. God, I even thank you for suffering. I thank you for how you break my trust in the created so that I can place my trust in the creator, that which can't fail, perish spoil, fade. God, I pray now for us as we respond to the truth that you've proclaimed to our lives, that you would allow us to to have a full knowledge of the gospel and hold it, God. Lord, draw us into your presence. Those that are near and those that are far from you in this moment, draw us into your presence. Allow us to, to rest in the peace, to exclaim the joy God, purify our faith by any means necessary. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his perfect name that I pray. Amen.